Okay, if you'll take your uh, Bible and open up to uh, Luke chapter 6, uh, we're looking at a sermon of Jesus's, and uh, we're going to be talking specifically about a pretty common problem today among those who would say they are followers of Jesus. And it's a, a pretty common problem that you find among professing Christians almost any time Jesus says anything, actually. But you remember maybe that we've been looking at a sermon that Jesus has been preaching after going up on a mountain and uh, praying and choosing 12 apostles and coming down and standing on a level place. There's a, a great crowd of people that have uh, gathered together and, and really from all over to uh, hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And so you can imagine that they're excited about Jesus, of course, because it's happening. This is not something that normally happens in this world right now. Power is literally coming out of this man, and they are being healed of all of their diseases. Luke says in verses 17 through 19 that Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him, him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and starts to preach a sermon, verse 20, on discipleship, basically. Lots of people are excited. Some of them might be real followers, some of them not. And so Jesus wants them to understand some really important things about what it means to follow him. And he starts off this sermon with a little bit of a shock, even more probably to them than to us because they had expectations, though it is a shock to us as well because he essentially says that the kingdom of God is not coming exactly the way they thought it would be coming because they thought the Messiah was coming, and bang, you know, their enemies defeated the curse reverse. And yet Jesus starts laying the groundwork for what's going to become more and more clear as we read the Gospel of Luke, and that is that he is going to be rejected and hated, and his followers, too, as a result. That's the part they didn't exactly understand coming out of the Old Testament. There's going to be a, a time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, and during that time, those who follow Jesus are going to be hated and shamed and persecuted, which is why Jesus says, verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And it's not normally good to be hated and excluded and reviled, of course. But it is actually good when you are persecuted because of your relationship with Jesus, because it means that you're on the right track. You're in step with what God is doing in this world right now through Jesus and really how God's been accomplishing salvation all throughout history, because this is how people have treated those who were standing for God all throughout history. That is the normal response right now. And so if you are his disciple, you're going to be persecuted. That is lesson number one. And Jesus wants you to respond differently to those who are doing it to those who are persecuting you and mistreating you than you normally would, or really pretty much than anyone else would. That is lesson number two. And if Jesus' sermon has a big idea, that's going to be it for sure. Love your enemies. Be merciful. And he's talking about your actions, and he's talking about your attitude. And last week we saw that he makes a case for that. And he has to make a case for that for loving your enemies and for being merciful because it's just so against the flow of how this world normally works. It's actually a really hard command in practice, in real life. It's one of the more controversial commands that Jesus gives. 
And we talked about what it means and what it doesn't mean and why it's so important. And I think you saw Jesus really makes a case that this is something he really wants from his disciples. He says, look, if you're not like this, you're no different than unbelievers. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And he says it over and over. He repeats the command. Verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Verse 36, but love your enemies. And so there's no confusion. He explains the command, giving specific examples. And he grounds the command in the character of God. Verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. He gives a warning that if you do not take this command seriously, you are going to be in danger of facing the wrath of God. Judge not, and you will not be judged, which means judge, and you will be judged. Condemn, and you will be condemned. He adds positive encouragement to it as well. It's not just negative. Verse 36, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Verse 38, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He illustrates why not to listen to your own ideas when they disagree with his. It's like you're blind, and he sees. And verse 39, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? He reminds you what you were signing up for, when you were signing up to be his disciple, being a disciple means you put yourself under him to learn from him and to be like him. And that doesn't mean much when you're not willing to do what he says when it's different than what you think. Verse 40, a disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. He shows how this is essential for doing ministry, this kind of attitude. If you are not merciful and generous and loving, you're not really going to help anyone. Verses 41 through 43. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. And even more than that, really, Jesus kicks it up a notch. It's not just that you're not going to be able to do ministry. It's that this negative, critical, harsh, judgmental, condemning attitude actually reveals something about you at a fundamental level. You cannot disconnect that fruit from the root. And this was verse 43, where Jesus uses really strong language again. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so it's, it's like Jesus really backs us into a corner here, you know, as people who are excited about him, who say we want to follow him. He shows us first the reality that it's not always going to be easy. We're going to have lots of people attacking us. We're going to stay in this wicked world for a while before he comes back. And he wants us to respond to people so differently while we're here. And he makes it clear it's really important we do. And he gives all these arguments and these explanations why. And yet, and yet, even with all that, there is still a way that people will try to get out of it. That will try to get out of it. I'm not talking about people who would say they are unbelievers here now, people who don't respect Jesus. I'm talking about people like you and me. People who would say that they are, are Christians, people who maybe are part of a, a church, maybe who have been baptized, maybe who pray to Jesus. There's still a way that people like that will try to get out of it, out of this specific command here to be merciful, but really not just this one specific command either. This could apply more generally, almost to any time Jesus says, 
something about what he wants from us because almost every time Jesus says something about what he wants from us, it's going to be different than the way that people around us, maybe at work or the experts we're reading in books, are talking, and different than the way we would naturally think as well. And when that happens, there is a very common way that people respond that Jesus actually anticipates here in this sermon. He's talking thousands of years ago to these people who are saying they are his disciples, but if he were here in physical form today, he could be saying this same thing in so many churches. Then I want to show you the common way that people respond in verse 46 when Jesus' commands and their ideas don't match up. I want to show you why that response doesn't make sense. And then I want to show you, even more than that, why not only does it not make sense, why it's disastrous, why that is a spiritually disastrous response. So this sermon is like a warning sermon. It's going to be a simple, but it is a warning sermon. Not just to people out there, but to us here. You are here. And if anyone asks you, you would say you are a follower of Jesus. But I'm guessing there's probably something in your life, a command of Jesus's, like maybe this one to be merciful, where what Jesus says and what you want are different. And there's a way that you are going to be tempted to respond that is very common, that doesn't make sense, and that will be spiritually disastrous. And you're not the first. You are totally not the first. Jesus identifies it here in verse 46 because he's concerned that this is how the people he's talking to are tempted to respond. He says, look at it, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So what's going on there with that question? is that here is a way that people are going to try to get out of obeying Jesus and still feel fine about themselves. A very common way. And it is to say the right thing about Jesus with their lips without being willing to actually submit to Jesus with their lives. So it's tempting to think to yourself, you know, I'm a professing Christian. Uh, If somebody asks me at work, I'll say I'm a Christian, I was baptized, I even maybe had the church say, yeah, we think you're a Christian, I'm a churchgoer, I show up, I listen to sermons, maybe I give a little when there is a communion, I celebrate communion, but in spite of that, at this point, in this command, I think Jesus is asking a little too much of me. And I'm kind of used to that because that's just kind of what Jesus does, right? He'll say things that seem extreme, And when he does, I feel like I have options. I I need to listen, of course, to consider what he says, but I have options. As, As someone who is a Christian, this is a very common way to think. I bring my plan to the table, and he brings his plan to the table. And what do we do? We we look at both plans, and then I'm free to decide which I want to follow. And still feel like all this other stuff means means something. All this Calling myself a Christian and going to the church still means something. And that's really the issue here, the concern. Because, of course, there are people who would say they're not Christians, who make no claims to being a disciple and don't do what Jesus says. Of course. And that's a problem. But Jesus is not talking about that problem here. He's talking about another problem. The problem of people calling Jesus Lord while refusing to submit to his lordship when they don't agree with him. So here's a guy, and and maybe he gambles. He's at your work. He says he's a Christian. Uh, You have a problem. He's like, hey, I'm going to pray for you. I'm totally going to pray for you. He gives out a little Christian advice sometimes. You go over to his house. He's got like the nice Hobby Lobby signs with verses on them. He'll say to people, uh, you really do need to trust in the Lord or whatever, but he gambles, and you show him maybe. You get out your Bible You show him, you study this issue, this is not what Jesus wants for you, and he sees it, and you did such a good job explaining the biblical argument that he actually agrees. He's like, I can see it. That's not biblical. It's disobedience. 
And then it's almost like the conversation is, is over because he's not changing. And you're like, hey, I thought you said that you thought this was sin. And he's like, yeah, I do think that is sin. But I want to gamble. I like it. It's, it's fun for me. And you're like, but wait, I thought you said you understood what the Bible teaches. And he's like, I do. I just don't want to do that. And yet, he still feels sure he's a Christian. There's no shaking there. There's no inner conviction like, maybe I need to reevaluate my relationship with God. That is a very common response when Jesus says something that seems hard. So maybe even take this command here to be merciful, another example. You can imagine sitting with somebody, and they've been hurt by someone. And uh, they are Christians, at least they say they're Christians. And you listen to them, and they express a lot of, and you express a lot of sympathy. And you're like, that is really hard. You appreciate their struggle. But you say, okay, you have been sinned against. And I know there are consequences, of course. And I'm not, I'm not totally sure how we're going to work all that out. But at least we know when it comes to your inner heart attitude toward them, you've got to be merciful. You can't be going around thinking all these bad thoughts about them. That's sin. And if God gives you the chance, you should figure out how to actively do them good. You should forgive and, and seek reconciliation. And they are like, yeah, no. <laughs> I, I'm not willing to go that far. Not for them. And so you, you go through all the work of trying to understand and making sure they understand that what is being asked of them comes from the Bible and th that they understand what you're not saying and at the end of the day, you realize, no, it's not just that it's hard or that they're struggling to obey. It's that they won't. They're more motivated to do what is comfortable than what pleases God. That is a very common response. You agree? It's tempting for us, too, right? For, for me, when there's a command, something different than we like. And... It's been happening for a long time. This response goes all the way back to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, to Israel at Mount Sinai. We probably could take it back further, but definitely there. You remember how after God saves them from Egypt and he meets with them at the mountain and he gives them this great opportunity to be his people and it's all grace and he tells them his expectations and they agree and they're like, everything you say, everything you say we're going to do. Then Moses goes up on a mountain to meet with God on their behalf. And they're like, oh, this is taking a while. And they start disobeying all these important commands. But they do it actually in the name of Yahweh. It's, it's crazy. The text says, Exodus 32, 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which is referring to sexual immorality. Right after they rose up to worship, they combined that with sexual sin, and at that point, they kind of felt like they were fine. It didn't phase them. And that's the story that keeps going throughout the Old Testament, all the way to the end. Religious on the outside, right words, wrong actions. Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 1, verse 6. Listen to this, talking to God's people, actually the priests. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I them am a father, where's my honor? And if a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? And how do they respond? But you say, how have we despised your name? And God goes on and he gives these really specific, obvious examples that were so clear, and yet they just can't believe it. It's like a shock to them that it bothers him, like, are you, are you really talking to us? We despise your name? Almost like, but we say the right things. We say the right things. Isn't that, isn't that enough? And if we do that, if we just say the right things, does all this other stuff really matter? That's a problem all throughout the Old Testament. And at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, only the second sermon that Luke records, Luke 6, as he's preaching to this crowd of people who seem excited about him, Jesus anticipates that things haven't changed all that much. He knows how people work. It's still a very common way to respond, which is why he says, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and not do what I tell you. And you can almost hear them, Lord, Lord, as Jesus is standing there. And he's been healing everyone. And there's all these people surrounding him with their hands out. Lord, 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 Lord. You can imagine them crying out. And Jesus is like, wait, wait. He, he didn't just accept that because he knows there are several different categories of people. I sometimes think it would be easier if there were just two categories of people. You know, those who say they're following Jesus and are willing to obey and those who say they aren't following Jesus and aren't willing to obey. But there aren't. There are three. There's this whole other category of people who are saying they are followers of Jesus but aren't willing to do what he says when it conflicts with their desires or their plan. That was very common back in the Old Testament in Jesus' day and all the way to Judgment Day, really. It keeps going. If you look at the way Jesus speaks in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, basically the way he concludes this sermon as well, just like I might use the same illustration in different sermons. Jesus did too, only he changes it a little. And he says, on that day, so what day? Judgment Day. In Luke, he's looking at the people right in front of them, uh, him. Why do you say? In Matthew, he's looking way far into the future. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, judgment day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In Luke, Jesus is saying it's happening now. I see it happening now. In Matthew, he's saying it's going to happen then. And so it's, it's not really surprising that it's still happening today. This is a very common way people respond to Jesus, and it doesn't make sense. That's the thing. It doesn't make sense. That's a common way to respond to Jesus, to think that you can be a follower of Jesus without actually following Jesus as long as you say that you're following Jesus. Like the words are enough to be a disciple, that's a common way to respond to Jesus. It's happening here in Luke 6. It also doesn't make sense. It's a foolish way to respond to Jesus. And I think that's maybe why Jesus begins this verse with why. You can look at it. Why? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you're not willing to do what I say? Because really, what does the word Lord mean? Ultimately, with Jesus, it means God. And that may not be what they mean here when they say it, but bigger picture, that is what it means when we use it to talk about Jesus. God, like Thomas says in John chapter 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. And if we even take it down a level or look at it from another angle, at the very least, Lord means master, owner, boss. And it's weird because why would you even call Jesus that if you're not willing to listen when he talks? You are my God. You are my master, but I am going to do my own thing. It's like telling someone, I want to follow you. I'm so excited about following you, and then walking the opposite direction. It doesn't make sense. And yet, of course, people have their explanations. Maybe you have your explanation. It's actually a, a rhetorical question here. Why do you call me Lord but some people will try to respond to Jesus and explain why. Here's why. And so they might say, it's because I'm saved by faith, not by what I do. That's why. And, and once people intellectually understand the gospel, that's something they've been saying for a long time, actually. It's about faith, not works. But first of all, what kind of faith? You're saved by what kind of faith? A living faith, obviously, not a, a dead faith. There's a living faith and there is a dead faith. And James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that makes sense because it's faith in what? Christian faith is faith in what the Bible says about Jesus. That's one part of it. And what are you confessing you believe about Jesus when you become a Christian? This is a fundamental part of it, that he is Lord, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, he, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you hear the link, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. 
Because he doesn't mean that merely saying the right words equals being saved like magic, but that a right understanding of who Jesus is is essential to being saved. And part of that right understanding is that he is in charge of you. He is your Lord. In fact, later on in Romans, Paul will explain what it means to call Jesus Lord by saying it means if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. In other words, Jesus being Lord means Jesus owns us. And so you say, I'm saved by faith, not what I do. Of course. But what faith? Living faith in the fact that Jesus is Lord over all. And how in the world can you think that you believe you had that kind of faith if you're not willing to have him tell you what to do, right? That doesn't make sense. It's foolish. Or you say, okay, okay, I get that. But, but everybody disobeys. And so you ask me why I say, Lord, Lord, and don't do what Jesus say, but I ask you the same thing. Because do you sin? Do you do everything he says all the time? No, I bet you don't. Then what's the difference? And this is a little silly again, because I think we all know there's a difference between someone who wants to obey but doesn't do it perfectly and someone who is not willing to obey. It's like, do you think there is a difference between someone who makes a plan and intentionally murders someone and someone who isn't looking and runs someone over with their car? There's a difference. They're both sad, but I think we all know there's a difference. And if we're able to figure that out, Certainly the most righteous judge in the universe is able to tell that as well. If I'm a, a boss, I can have three different kinds of employees. I can have someone who's worked for me a long time and does what I want perfectly. I can have someone who just started and is really eager and does what I ask but not perfectly. And then I can have someone who's working for me who does some things and doesn't do others. He just picks and chooses. And I know there's a difference. And you know there's a difference. And the Bible acknowledges this difference. It does. We're not just making that up. The Bible knows that we're sinners right now as Christians. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So Paul recognizes he's not perfect yet. And in fact, all of us should, because in 1 John chapter 1, John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And yet, you know what else John says? The same writer. He says, 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And the key word there is practice. This is a sort of hardened decision. I am just going to do what I want without conviction. There's a, a difference between King David and a King Saul. You know the story because both sin for sure. And there's a point in David's life even where it was intentional. It's true. And that wasn't a good point. And you know what? At that point, I think you could have legitimately said to David, why do you say these things about God and not obey? And if you looked at the rest of his life and he responded like Saul, I would say you wouldn't have any reason to really think David was a believer. But ultimately, he didn't respond when confronted like Saul, when confronted with his sin. He didn't say, you know what, it doesn't matter. I'm the king. I can do what I want. He repented. Which, of course, back to Luke 6, I think is part of why Jesus asked this. It's like a warning to his real followers because it might be that someone's a Christian and is not submitting in every area, but that's why Jesus asks, why are you calling me Lord and not doing what I say? It's a warning. A real Christian will hear that, be convicted by that, and change as a result. Where a hypocrite, you know what? He just keeps making excuses. He tries to answer Jesus, but I'm saved by faith, or nobody's perfect, or maybe even, I'm not a pastor. I don't have to be so strict. And people say this. They have these categories. And this is kind of a funny one because when people say that, they're acknowledging they know what they're doing is wrong. <laughs> and in fact, if they saw someone else doing it, they probably would condemn them, especially if they were religious leadership. They would be like, you hypocrite. How dare you? Or they'll be like, see, 
I told you, everybody does this. And yet, you know, when you're being judged for your sin along with that pastor, that's probably not going to bring you much comfort. You know what I'm saying? There are not two kinds of followers of Jesus in the Bible. The super serious ones who are supposed to take up their cross and say no to themselves and follow Jesus, and then all these others who can go their own way and end up in the same place. No. Jesus is walking one way, and if you are going to follow him, you have to be willing to go that direction too. It does not make sense to call Jesus Lord and not be willing to do what he says. But maybe you're like, but it kind of does make sense to me. <laughs> because God is merciful. And Jesus says that. He says your father is merciful. And yes, that's true. But what else does he say? He says, you hypocrite. <laughs> he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And that's just a start. You keep reading your Bible. That's just a start. He says, on judgment day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But you're like, okay, I would obey Jesus. I would, I would, I really would. But the thing is, I can't. I, I don't have the strength. And this is maybe one of the better excuses if you're looking for a good excuse. Uh, first of all, because it's really hard for someone to respond to who loves you without feeling like they're giving you a hard time. And plus, it, it feels spiritual as well, because there's truth in it. Because, first of all, obedience is hard. And second of all, looking at your, you or looking at me by myself, we don't have the strength in ourselves of, to do what Jesus says. But, of course, if you're calling Jesus Lord, you're saying you're a Christian, and that means you're not by yourself, right? And what does the Bible say? 2 Peter 3, verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we have supernatural resources, in other words, which doesn't mean it's always going to be easy or that you're going to just do what Jesus says perfectly every time, but it does mean that it's really foolish to say you are a Christian and yet stubbornly refuse to submit to Jesus' authority in your life and still think that's fine. And yet again, people do. All the time. And while Jesus' question, of course, is rhetorical, other parts of the Bible do give us God's answer as to why people do that. Like real reasons. People have their reasons, but the Bible has real reasons. And so one reason is false teaching. Jude, verses 3 and 4. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And this is all the way back at the beginning of the church. And yet there are already spiritually blind people deceiving other spiritually blind people into thinking that grace means it's fine to do whatever you want. Which, of course, of course is part of why we need good churches that teach the Bible. This matters. You talk to people who think they're Christians because they go to churches that don't accurately teach the Bible. And it's like they've been inoculated against the gospel. It's so hard to get them to even hear what you're saying. You would almost rather talk to, to someone who didn't know anything because their minds are so filled with false teaching. But it's not just false teaching, of course, that's causing the problem because sometimes people do this, even people who go to good churches with good theology. And one way they're able to do it is by kind of turning their minds off and not doing much thinking or self-evaluation. And again, maybe that's why Jesus asks why. Like, think. Think about what you're doing. You have to think. But sometimes people don't want to think about what they're doing. They don't want to be challenged because they don't actually want to change. Isaiah talks about religious people like that who are worshiping idols in Isaiah 44, 18. He shows how foolish idolatry is, and then he says, no one considers 
nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of this wood I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make of the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So he's looking at these religious people, and it's clearly foolish what they're doing. Like, they burned half of this wood, and they baked bread on its coals, and it's not working. They're feeding on ashes, but they just don't consider. <laughs> they don't have the discernment to say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And it's a moral problem. Why don't you consider? It's not a mental problem. It's a moral problem. Their heart is deluded. And yet, you know, you might ask the next question. If that's what they really want, they don't want to think. They just want to do what they want to do. Why then are they still religious? Coming back to Luke 6, why are they calling Jesus Lord if they just want to do what they want in the first place? And maybe there are different reasons like habit or intellectually they do agree with what the Bible teaches or like they think the church is a, a place with nice people and nice friends. And sometimes it's because they hope they can get something from Jesus. There are things you can get from saying the right things about Jesus. Back then, in his day, for sure, maybe they thought they could get healing or bread or food or miracles, but even now as well. You know, there are ways that people try to use Jesus by saying the right things. So, like, you might get a little better feeling about yourself for a little while. You, you feel bad, you did something wrong, and so you try to appease your conscience by saying the right things about Jesus or coming to church and, like, singing songs really loudly or saying certain words or, or fooling people. They think I'm good, so I must be good. And sometimes people do that to make themselves feel better. But sometimes people do that to try to manipulate other people into thinking they're good people so they can get something from them. And it's sad, but people do this, right? Proverbs talks about an adulterous woman, a woman who really wants to commit adultery. And you know one of the ways she tries to tempt the foolish young man? Proverbs 7 Solomon says, she seizes him and she kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I, ha I had to offer sacrifices today, and today I've paid my vows. I, I, I just got back from worship, so now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you, which sounds weird to us, except it's how people work so often. As they're sinning and trying to get others to sin, they're making excuses for themselves and trying to make themselves look good in the eyes of others so they can get them to do what they want them to do. Those are some reasons why. False teaching, not thinking, manipulation. But I guess the ultimate reason that people call Jesus Lord and are unwilling to do what he says is just because they're not Christians. And... This makes it such a big deal. You are not a Christian just because you say you're one. And if you're not willing to do what Jesus says, it might be because you're actually not a Christian. And you don't always know that right away when you're looking at someone, someone who seems like they're not willing to obey. And we need to be super patient as a church. And that's even why in the church there's something called church discipline where we try to help people with their sin. And that church discipline is a, a process. You don't just see someone sinning and then be like, okay, get out of the church. You're not a Christian. No, you confront, you wait, you confront, you go through all this process because you know that sometimes it takes people time to come to repentance. But the thing is, if they don't, if you go through that process and they stubbornly refuse to submit to Jesus while still claiming to be a Christian, there comes a point where the church has to say, you know what, we don't think you have the right to call yourself a Christian. In other words, why are you calling Jesus Lord if you're not willing to do what he says? You need to think about your relationship with Jesus. Just because you're saying the right things about Jesus, that's not the final proof that you actually are a Christian. Though again, a lot of people think it is. It's pretty common. Everywhere I've gone where there are a lot of churches, 
I find this problem. People growing up, going to church, thinking I'm a Christian even though I have no desire for obedience to Christ. And it doesn't bother me because this is just how everyone is. But first of all, no, it's not actually how everyone is because God does save people and change people and give them new desires. It is not how everyone is. And it doesn't make sense if you think about it. In light of what you say about, you believe about Jesus, about God, about the Bible, about salvation, about eternity, it's just confusing all around. It's foolish. And ultimately, it's going to be a problem if you don't change. It's, it's going to be catastrophic for you spiritually in terms of your relationship with God and really everything else if you don't turn from that and submit. This is a major problem. And to help you see how big a problem it is, Jesus gives an illustration. He makes a comparison, and he starts with the positive in verse 47. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. So Jesus is thinking about that crowd of people standing in front of them, in that Luke's told us they've come to Jesus in order to hear him. Back up in verse 18. You remember he says, there's a crowd who came to hear him. And so Jesus is saying to them and to us that we have a choice. We have to decide whether or not we'll actually do what he tells us. And if we do, if we come and hear his words and do what he says, Jesus shows us what we're like. We're like a man who builds his house and digs down deep and lays the foundation on a rock. Verse 48. And the rock is God. That's a common Old Testament picture for him, or specifically Jesus. He's called the the rock later in the New Testament. And the house is basically your life. And so we're all building a life here. And we come to Jesus' word, Jesus, and we hear his words, and, and we do them. It's like we're digging down deep and laying the foundation on a rock. And obviously, a foundation is important. And one reason it's important in this passage is because there are storms. Verse 48, there's a flood coming. And Jesus says, when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. And that flood in this illustration could refer to life's difficulties in general, or it could refer to the final judgment as well. Uh, people disagree, but I don't really see any reason it couldn't be both. It's like you're building a house with your life, and Jesus is saying, if you want to build on a foundation that's certain and that can withstand the trials of life, and even ultimately the judgment of God, it's not enough to simply come and hear me and show me some respect. You have to be willing to put what I say into practice. There has to be a commitment to applying my words to your life. You do that, and it's like you're building your foundation on the rock. But listen, listen to me now. If you don't, if you come, and you're happy to just say the right things about Jesus without actually caring what he says to you. That is a serious mistake because if you don't obey Jesus, you are going to be like, and this is verse 49, someone who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. He says, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on a ground without a foundation. And so here's this person who wants to build a house. And yet it's rock and it's too much work. And so he's not willing to do that work. And he decides he's just going to build his house on top of the dirt because it's too much trouble to dig down deep, which sounds so crazy to us reading this. But if you actually try to dig down deep into a rock to lay a foundation, it requires a lot of work, like changing your life and obeying Jesus. Even just this command he gives here, showing mercy. Think about how many habits you would actually have to change to become a person who loves his enemies like this. And so it's tempting for us when confronted by one of Jesus' commands to want to take shortcuts. And at first, people might not notice, actually, because your house is up and your life is going. And we can't see that the foundation isn't deep right now. But we will see when the floods arise, that is the thing. Because when the flood, floods arise, what does Jesus say? He says, his house falls. And it falls hard, verse 49. Jesus says, when the stream broke against it, 
immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The ruin, first of all, right now is great. In this life, just being religious and saying the right words about Jesus but not being willing to obey Jesus, right now that has consequences. It really does. And you see this all the time with people who are saying some of the right things about Jesus but don't really know him and are not serious about obeying him. They can do fine for a while when life is going well, but when life starts going hard, the wheels start coming off and they start freaking out and all that religious stuff that they've been doing, it doesn't do them any good. It doesn't give them strength to withstand the trials they face with any kind of joy or peace. And you know what I'm talking about, I think. You meet someone who is like, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I will not forgive that person. How does that turn out for them usually? Or you meet someone who's like, I know Jesus wants me to be merciful, but I'm not going to be serious about it. I'm going to be critical and negative and bitter while coming to church and being religious. How does that turn out for them or their family usually? If you know what Jesus wants you to do, but you're not willing to obey, you're just going to do your thing. You, you might get away with it for a while. Most people can't tell at first. We're bad at knowing what's going on in people's hearts. You can fool almost anyone. But you need to know, if that's your commitment, you are starting down a road. You are choosing to go a certain direction. You need to know that. And that direction is toward ruin. And the further and further you walk down that road, the harder and harder it's going to be to turn back without experiencing serious consequences. I mean, as long as you're alive, as long as you're breathing, Jesus is willing to forgive you. Hear that. No matter how far you go, it is one step back in terms of forgiveness. But it's not one step back in terms of the consequences in your life right now because of your hypocrisy or in the lives of others even. If you are unwilling to do what Jesus says, there is a storm coming, a flood. And if it doesn't come in this life, because it doesn't always, sometimes you can do the wrong thing and get away with it for a long time, but you won't get away with it when you face Jesus because he knows you and he's the judge. And that's why this is such a serious issue ultimately. As one writer I read put it, there is a special evil in calling Jesus Lord and not being willing to obey. You get into the practice of that, and it is a special evil because it makes it harder and harder for you ever to change because you're getting spiritually callous. You are hurting other people around you. That's part of why it's a special evil. A hypocrite does a lot of damage. He dishonors the word of God. He gives the enemies of Jesus something bad to say. He makes the gospel look ugly. You call Jesus Lord, but you're not willing to do what he says, and you make it confusing for people who want to help you. They don't know. Is it because he doesn't know? Do I need to tell him something new? Or maybe the problem is something else, because you're saying, Jesus is my Lord, and they're like, but it doesn't seem like you know what that means, and so they don't know how to help you. And ultimately, it's a special evil if you're just saying the right things about Jesus, but you're not committing to learning and growing in obeying Jesus. It's a special evil because it, it, it reveals what's actually happening in your heart, whether or not you have experienced saving grace. Because to use another figure of speech that Jesus gives in other places, Jesus is like a shepherd. And people are like sheep. And Jesus' sheep hears his voice, he knows them, and they follow him. They follow him. They follow him. Jesus' sheep follow him, and he gives eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. And so if you say you're a disciple of Jesus, one of his sheep, that is great, so great. But a lot of people in Jesus' day said the same thing. 
which is why he's asking them this question. Are you willing to do what Jesus says when it's not what you want? You know, if you want to follow Jesus, the very first thing you need to settle in your life, once and for all, is the supremacy of Christ over all of your life. When Jesus speaks, listen. And specifically here, if he says to love your enemy, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you, to show mercy to people who don't deserve it, while that is hard, Jesus has made it clear it's important and he's given him reasons and given us reasons and you call him Lord. So what are you going to do with that person? I know it's pretty common to feel like you're okay even though you're not willing to do what Jesus wants because you're willing to say the right things about him. But if you call Jesus Lord, that doesn't make sense. And it's disastrous if you don't turn. So turn. Turn. Submit to Jesus. Because as he calls you to pick up your cross, you need to know that he will help you. And so if you come to Jesus with that command that is so hard and ask, and you're truly willing to do what he says, no matter how difficult, and you're willing to use the resources he gives, you can obey. You can obey. We can obey, not perfectly. We're not going to be able to obey Jesus perfectly in this life until we get to heaven, but we can obey Jesus acceptably. Jesus can empower us to do that. He can if we ask. So ask. Jesus can give you the ability to dig down deep and build your life on a solid foundation. And it's obvious here that's what he wants. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I don't want that. What I want is for you to call me Lord and be willing to submit. That is step number one in being one of Jesus' disciples. Let's pray. Jesus, you are Lord owner, master, God. You are our Lord. You are a kind Lord, a gracious Lord, the best Lord, the only true Lord, but you are Lord. And we as a church, we call you that. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not just call you that, but live like it's true. Help us. Give us the resources as a church. You have, you have, you have. Please strengthen us to to utilize those resources and be people whose, whose life matches up with our lips, who, who call you Lord and are willing to do what you say, even when it seems hard, because we know you're good and we trust you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.